It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so, so much for listening. On today's episode, we'll review our match against Fiorentina on Sunday in part two, we'll recap the Atalanta Juven Milan games and what those results mean for us. And in part three, we'll review our Femenile match, which was the penultimate game of the season and had some pretty big implications on the relegation battle. So let's start with our win over Fiorentina on Sunday. Lorenzo Insigne scored from the penalty spot, and the second goal came from a Fiorentina own goal. That was our third consecutive win. We're unbeaten now in our last 14 rounds. The only loss during that stretch was against Juventus, but technically that was match day three. Every game is the most important right now, but this was really a must win. And I have to say, after the first half, I was genuinely concerned. We were quite poor in the first half, and Fiorentina were defending well. Any suggestions from rival fans that Fiorentina were going to let us win to spite Juventus were proven false. I'd be lying if I told you I wasn't thinking back to 2018 as this game was unfolding, even though the situations were different in the sense that this season we control our own destiny, whereas in 2018 we didn't, there were still some parallels. Juve beat Inter by the exact same scoreline I might add, and we played against Fiorentina who ended our hopes in 2018. But another difference this season is Gennaro Gattuso and the effect that he's had on some of these players, specifically with respect to mental strength. We also had some luck on our side, more so on the second goal. There are different opinions on whether the decision to award the penalty was fortunate or not. We'll cover all of that in this review and we'll revisit our three keys to the match. But first, let's get to the starting lineups. Pepe Iacchini made four changes to the squad that he fielded against Cagliari midweek, lined up in his usual 3-5-2. 
Pietro Terracciano started in goal after Bartolome Dragovski picked up a muscular injury in that match. Martin Caceres returned to the starting 11, so Nikola Milankovic shifted to the center of the three-man back line, with Herman Petzela to his left and Caceres to his right, while Igor was relegated to the bench. I think I might have called Herman Petzela Giuseppe in my preview. Apologies for that. Giuseppe plays for Parma. They're not related either. Herman is from Argentina, while Giuseppe is actually Napolitano. Cristiano Biraghi started at left wing back and Lorenzo Venuti started at right wing back. Gaetano Castrovilli started over Sofian Amrabat in the center of the midfield with Eric Pulgar to his left and Giacomo Bonaventura to his right. Frank Ribery returned to the starting 11 after Christian Kwame got the start against Cagliari and he started alongside Dusan Vlahovic up top. For Napoli, Gennaro Gattuso made only one change to the squad that beat Udinese and two changes compared to our predicted 11. As usual, we lined up in the 4-2-3-1 with Alex Meret in goal. Amir Rachmani and Kostas Manolas started at centre-back, while Kaladu Kalibali continues to recover from his injury. Elsid Hisai started again at left-back, and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started again at right-back. Surprisingly, Timoy Bakayoko got a second consecutive start over Diego Deme in the double pivot, alongside Fabian Ruiz. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing, while Matteo Politano came back in to spell Chucky Lozano on the right wing. Finally, Piotr Zielinski started in the 10th spot behind Victor Osiman. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's revisit our three keys to the match. Our first key to the match was that we needed to stop the red-hot Dusan Vlahovic. We definitely achieved that goal. Vlahovic was kept at bay for this match. He did not get on the score sheet. That wasn't due to any fault of his own, Fiorentina set up very defensively especially before we scored and Vlahovic got very little service. When he did get service he made the most of it including that goal that was ruled out for offside. The ball from Biragi was excellent but Vlahovic just went a little too soon. He was still very enjoyable to watch though just like Osimen, who was also kept off the score sheet. They are two of Serie's brightest stars and you can see why. They're both exciting to watch, they're high energy and they're hungry. Every time Fiorentina played the long ball, Vlahovic was there trying to win the header whether it was against our center backs or Bakayoko and we saw his passion in the second half in stoppage time when he slammed the ball against the steps at the Franchi. Our second key to the match was if it ain't broke don't fix it. The suggestion there was that we needed to keep feeding the long ball to Osimen. I think we achieved this goal as well. We were definitely looking for the long ball right from the opening kickoff. We saw Fabian go long only 30 seconds into the match. He picked out Osimen again in the 8th minute which nearly led to a chance again. Osimen showed us how good his touch is on that play. He took the ball down beautifully before squaring it across the face of the goal. That save that Terracciano made on Zielinski started with a nice ball to Osman down the line and he did really well to cut in before picking up Zielinski at the edge of the area. Most importantly, the second goal started with Fabian blocking a cross before Politano immediately launched Osman into space. Osman played an absolutely gorgeous switch to Insigne with pinpoint accuracy. Credit to Insigne, more often than not he takes the shot from that area but this time he laid it off. Zielinski's shot took a lucky bounce off of Venuti and found the bottom corner. Initially the goal was given to Zielinski which would have been his ninth of the season but it was later changed to an own goal. Now I was tempted to call this one a push because the long ball in fact wasn't terribly effective. It certainly wasn't as effective as it was against Udinese. In our preview we talked about how Spezia played too high and Udinese were pushed too deep. 
Fiorentina seemed to get their line just right, they played deep enough that Osman couldn't get behind them, and high enough that Osman was either caught offside, or Terracciano was there waiting to collect the ball. I thought Milenkovic did a really good job of man-marking Osimhen in the center of the field, and Biragi and Venuti did a good job of defending the wings. Fiorentina often defended with a five-man backline, which made it very difficult for us to cross the ball. Against Udinese, we used our width to stretch the field, but with a five-man backline and everyone else clogging up the midfield, using the wings didn't really create much space. That's why the first half was so frustrating. Once we scored, the play did naturally open up with Fiorentina looking for the equalizer. That in itself was impressive given that Fiorentina didn't have anything to play for. Some people suggested that they would lay down for us because of their rivalry with Juventus, but they definitely did not. On the other hand, they had a lot to gain from winning this match because if Juventus qualify for the Champions League, that triggers a 10 million euro bonus on the sale of Federico Chiesa. So Fiorentina were definitely trying to get a result and then going forward, that created space for us in the counterattack. Just before coming off, we saw Hisai take advantage of that space and go long to Osimhen, who drew a yellow card on Petzella. That was also the play that Osimhen went down holding his shoulder, which was a scary sight. We know how much time he missed after injuring his shoulder in the African Cup of Nations. However, he injured his right shoulder in that tournament, and after this incident, he was clutching his left shoulder. Fortunately, he appeared to be okay and was subbed off shortly after that foul. Finally, our third key to the match was that we needed to watch out for the counterattack. We didn't concede any goals, so we achieved this one as well. As I mentioned, Fiorentina definitely set up to defend and counter. Full credit to our backline, who I thought were instrumental in stopping that Fiorentina counterattack. We saw Amir Rachmani do it in the first half, around the half hour mark, where he stepped up and intercepted a pass inside the Fiorentina half which immediately killed their attack. We saw Hisai break up the counterattack about 10 minutes later. That was the play where Biragi went down deep in Fiorentina's half, but Fiorentina attacked anyway. Then when we retrieved possession, Abiso stopped the play. Fabian was visibly upset, and rightfully so. If Fiorentina didn't feel the need to play the ball out when their own player is down, then Napoli should have been allowed to play on. Back to defending on the counter though, Manolas made another key interception to stop Ribéry and Vlahovic about midway through the second half as well. And our midfielders were helping out too, I thought Bakayoko had another solid game starting over Demme. Fabian was impressive once again as well, he's really embraced that deep line playmaker role. And of course the wingers got back to defend on the wings. So we achieved all three of our keys to the match, which I think is consistent with the final result. I want to touch on a couple of talking points before I close this review. Let's start with the penalty decision. This was a bit of a controversial one, at least for some people. I didn't spot it in real time, but after seeing the replay, I thought this was definitely a penalty. Now, obviously, I'm biased as a Napoli fan. There were plenty of other people, namely Juventini, claiming that this was not a penalty. The common defense was that the players were pulling each other, that Rachmani was pulling Milenkovic's arm while Milenkovic was pulling Rachmani's shirt. Rachmani was pretty adamant that his shirt was being pulled. Some Juventini used this call as evidence that, contrary to public opinion, the referees are not in fact helping Juve get into the top 4. Of course, the flip side of that coin is that if the call that was given to Cuadrado was a penalty, then surely this was too. At the very least, you would have to agree that this was a close call while the supposed foul on Cuadrado was clearly not a penalty. It's also worth noting that in the 19th minute Biragi had two handfuls of Osman's shirt and nothing was called there, 
So even if you think Rachmani wasn't fouled, you could say that two wrongs made a right. What's crazy to me is that once the penalty was given, Milenkovic was not shown a yellow card. That almost never happens. Typically when VAR awards a penalty, the player who committed the foul is booked. Of course, Milenkovic was already on a yellow, so he probably should have been sent off there. Milenkovic wasn't the first player who should have been sent off. Frank Ribery picked up a yellow just before the break for a late foul that I thought was quite cynical. Then he fouled Zielinski shortly after the restart, and I think that was a yellow card offense as well. I suspect had that been another player, he would have been booked. Instead, Fiorentina's usual starting keeper, Dragovski, was shown a red card on the bench for dissent. In any event, Insigne was stopped by Terracciano on the penalty, but the keeper pushed the ball straight back to Insigne, who scored on the rebound. This was identical to Cristiano Ronaldo's goal on Saturday, and it was a big one as well. With that goal, Insigne set a personal best for goals in a single Serie A campaign at 19. It's also worth noting that the yellow card LC Hisai picked up after the foul on Rachmani was cancelled. While that makes perfect sense to me, I don't think that was the correct application of the rules. There's a section on VAR protocols in the AIA's official rules of the game. That section starts with 12 principles by which the use of VAR is bound. And what principle 9 says is if the play continues after an episode, which is then re-examined, such as the foul on Rachmani, any disciplinary measures after that episode, such as the yellow card to Hisai, is not cancelled even if the initial decision is changed. Now, there is an exception for denying an obvious goal-scoring opportunity, but that's not what happened here. If it did, Hisai would have been shown a red card. So I think perhaps the rule was not enforced correctly here, but as we'll talk about in part 2, enforcement of the rules was a bit of an issue over the weekend. The last thing I want to talk about is the mentality of this club, which is inextricably linked to the discussion about the coaching decision. This game was yet another example of how Gattuso has improved the mental strength of this club. This game did not start off well at all. In the very early stages, it was very choppy. There were a lot of stoppages in play. I thought our first half was rather underwhelming. I thought we lacked movement. I thought we lacked creativity. I thought our passes lacked accuracy. And I think we were too predictable. As I mentioned, Fiorentina defended really well. And that frustrated us a bit. We were starting to force the play as a result of that. This was exactly the type of match where in recent history we would have looked out of ideas and perhaps even conceded on the opponent's lone chance and if that happened, heads would have dropped. But this time we played on, we kept on pushing and we got the 3 points even if we did get a debatable penalty and a fortunate bounce. Even on an individual level, the mentality has improved. The prime example for me is Lorenzo Insigne. He rocked the bar with a near-perfect free kick in the first half. In the past, we've seen big misses affecting Insigne's play, but I thought he had another very good game. Even though he missed the penalty, he followed up the rebound and scored. He also hit the upright after a lovely interchange between Fabian and Zielinski. Finally, there was Victor Osimhen. He's still young, but he's got a lot of energy, and as we've seen earlier in the season, he does have a tendency to lose his cool when things are not going his way. Even though we had a frustrating first half, he was very composed. Perhaps that was because he was getting plenty of service, but it was really important that he did not lose his cool. Osimhen has become one of the most important players on this team, at least as far as the attack goes. He's been on four yellow cards since the Spezia game, meaning one more yellow and he'd be suspended for a match, but he's managed to stay out of the officials' books for two matches now, meaning we'll have him in the starting 11 for our final match against Hellas Verona. If we win, we're in the top four, 
regardless of what happens in other matches. We'll talk about other matches from this round in part two. In part two, we'll check in on the battle for Champions League qualification. Heading into this round, Atalanta and Milan were tied on 75 points. We were in fourth on 73 points, and Juve were just one point behind us in fifth. Finally, Lazio were technically still alive. They were five points back of Juve and six points behind us, but they still had to play their game in hand against Torino. So let's start with Atalanta, who opened the round with a trip to Genoa. Giampiero Gasperini started a pretty strong squad, knowing that a victory would guarantee Champions League qualification. That's because Atalanta owned the tiebreaker over Juventus. Alexi Miranchuk started over Luis Muriel, who picked up a knock in Atalanta's midweek fixture against Benevento. Meanwhile, Genoa had nothing to play for, which is why Davide Ballardini made 10 changes to the squad that he fielded midweek against Bologna. In spite of all that, it was Genoa who had two clear-cut chances in the opening minutes of the match. First, Rovella caught Atalanta pressing too high and picked out Atalanta youth product Filippo Melagoni with acres of space in front of him. His first touch pushed himself a bit wide, but Melagoni managed to get a decent shot on target, which Pierluigi Golini pushed out for a corner kick. On the ensuing corner, the ball fell for Andrea Maziello, another former Atalanta player, but his shot hit the outside of the upright and stayed out. Atalanta settled down after that and before you knew it, they were ahead 1-0. Duvan Zapata played a give-and-go with Ruslan Malinovsky. Both of their passes were fired in and both did really well to control the ball. Zapata's touch to receive the return pass perfectly set up his shot, which he calmly rolled past Federico Marchetti. Zapata returned the favor in the 26th minute. Miranchuk played a lovely chip over the top to Zapata, who outmuscled Ivan Radovanovic to keep the ball in play. He then picked out Malinovsky in front of the goal for the tap-in. The goal was initially ruled out on the basis that the ball had crossed the byline, but the bar review showed that Zapata just barely kept the ball in, so Atalanta were suddenly up 2-0. Robin Gosens added the third just before the break. Once again, Malinowski was involved in the play. He played the pass before the pass, which was a cross to Hans Hattabor at the back post. He head the ball back into the danger area where Robin Gosens was there for the tap-in. I don't particularly like Atalanta, but I was happy to see Hattabor and Gosens combining on the goal. We saw a lot of that combination early in the season before Hattabor picked up an ankle injury that caused him to miss 13 games, so it's good to see him healthy again. Just like against Lazio a few games prior, Genoa pulled one back only a few minutes after the restart. Eldor Shomurodov, who had just come off the bench, pressed Brad Jimcinti into conceding possession before firing a gorgeous shot off the upright and in. But just like in that Lazio game, Genoa conceded a goal immediately after they scored one. Atalanta made it look easy. The play started with a throw-in in their own half. Ladea made six passes to get into the Genoa box before Matteo Pessina cut in and finished into the bottom corner. Like in that Lazio game, Genoa did not go down without a fight. About midway through the half, they made two shouts for a penalty, first for a foul on Goran Pendev, and then for a handball by Gozins. Neither foul was given, but match official Maurizio Mariani visited the VAR and confirmed that there was indeed a handball by Gozins. Pendev converted the penalty to score his sixth goal of the season. 
the parallels with that Lazio game continued. In that game, Shomurodov scored in the 81st minute to make the score 4-3. In this match, he scored in the 85th minute to make the score 4-3. With that brace, he surpassed Pandev with 7 goals. Unfortunately, the final result was the same as that Lazio game as well, with Genoa falling just short. With the win, Atalanta secured their place in the Champions League for the third consecutive season. That means they can focus squarely on the Coppa Italia final on Wednesday. Their opponent, Juventus, don't have that luxury. Juve played Inter in the afternoon match. Antonio Conte started his best 11, which confirmed that Inter wanted to win this match, despite having already won the Scudetto. Surprisingly, Andrea Pirlo started Dejan Kulusevski over Paolo Dybala, which appeared to be a wise decision at least early on. Juve were definitely the more positive side in the opening quarter of the match and were forcing some important blocks from Inter's backline. Unfortunately, this game became more about the official Gianpaolo Calvarese than about the play itself. It turned out to be one of the most controversial Derby d'Italia in history. The first controversial play came about midway through the half when Giorgio Chiellini went down in the area. Initially, the penalty wasn't given, but when the play stopped, Calvarez visited the monitor and decided to give the penalty. He deemed that Matteo Darmian had his arm around Chiellini, which I thought was a really soft call. If that's a penalty, then I can assure you there's probably a penalty on just about every single corner kick. Cristiano Ronaldo took the penalty and was stopped by Samir Handanovic, but the rebound fell kindly for Ronaldo who tapped into the empty goal. I'm a pretty objective person, but I couldn't help but think that once again, Juve were getting the calls. But less than 10 minutes later, Inter were awarded a penalty of their own. This call was also made after a visit to the monitor, and in my opinion, the decision was equally soft. The VAR review showed that Matthias Delict inadvertently stepped on Lautaro Martinez's heel inside the area. I've been saying this all season long, so it's somewhat futile, but football is a contact sport, and not all contact is a foul. I don't like that players throw themselves to the ground whenever there is contact, but that's how they get the officials' attention. If we don't want all this flopping around, we need to stop awarding these soft penalties. The issue is that clearly conflicts with the league's desire to have high-scoring matches, so I don't see these soft penalty decisions stopping anytime soon. After Juve's superstar scored for the Bianconeri, Inter superstar Romelu Lukaku scored for the Nerazzurri. So 35 minutes into the match, the score was all square. Neither team created any clear-cut chances in the half really. Inter were content to let Juve have the ball. They had their wingbacks drop into that five-man backline, which of course was very difficult to penetrate. Even the two goals came from rather innocent-looking plays. Because of those two VAR reviews, there was three minutes of stoppage time in the first half, and in the dying seconds of the half, Juan Cuadrado put Juve back ahead. It was a bit of a fortunate goal, but good things happen when you push forward. Kulusevski's cross from the right wing was blocked by Stefan de Vrij, but fell kindly for Cuadrado at the edge of the area. His shot took a deflection off Christian Eriksen, who turned his back on the play. Had Inter not already been champions, I don't think Antonio Conte would have been too happy about that. That deflection was enough to foil Handanovic, so Juve took a 2-1 lead into the break. Inter started the second half more positive than the first, looking for the equalizer. Ten minutes into the half, we got the third major decision from Calvareze. He showed Rodrigo Bentancur a yellow for what appeared to be a 50-50 tackle. Maybe there was a foul there, but it certainly was not a yellow card offense. Bentancur was already on a yellow, so with 35 minutes to play, Juve went down a man. Inter slowly increased the pressure to the point where Juve were basically on their heels defending. 
Both managers made interesting substitutions. Pirlo actually took out Cristiano Ronaldo in the 70th minute, which I think was the right decision, but one that took a lot of balls. Pirlo did say after the match that it might have been the first time Ronaldo was happy to be subbed off. He added that Juve were down a man and Ronaldo would have been chasing shadows. Meanwhile, Conte replaced centre-back Alessandro Bastoni with Matthias Vecino, who's a midfielder, so you know Conte wanted to fight. He could also afford to do that because he had an extra man. Vecino nearly equalized with his first involvement in the match, getting free in the area in the 82nd minute. He had even Perisic's cross low and hard, but Chesney made an excellent save to keep it out. Moments later, Inter did equalize on almost exactly the same play. The ball came off of Chiellini and went into his own goal, but the goal was ruled off for a foul by Lukaku on Chiellini. However, once again, VAR intervened, and you could clearly see on the replay that Chiellini, in fact, had a handful of Lukaku's shirt, and there was definitely no foul, so the goal was given, and the score was tied at 2. Chiellini was furious with the decision, which was rather ironic given how easily he went to ground to win Juve's penalty. That scoreline didn't stand for long, though. In the 88th minute, Calvareza awarded yet another penalty to Juve. This was probably the worst call of the lot. Cuadrado had the ball on the right wing, cut back into the area, and left his foot out to hit Perisic before he went to ground. Perisic did absolutely nothing wrong. If anything, he was fouled by Cuadrado. I was certain VAR would reverse the penalty decision, but it did not. With Ronaldo off, Cuadrado took the penalty himself and put it away very convincingly. He was the man of the match for me. You could argue that he's been Juve's best player all season, but of course that award has been reserved for Ronaldo. That was the final goal of the match. Amazingly, Juve have picked up 6 points from matches against Inform Sassuolo and Inter. That win ended Inter's unbeaten streak at 20 matches, but more importantly, it kept Juve in contention for Champions League qualification. With Napoli yet to play, Juve temporarily moved into 4th place. Moving on, Milan had a chance to secure their place in the Champions League in the final match of the round. Heading into the round, this was touted to be a tricky fixture, but Evento were expected to beat last place Crotone, meaning Cagliari would have been fighting for survival. Instead, Benevento drew Crotone, and they did it in rather dramatic fashion. Benevento opened the scoring in the 13th minute, then they went up a man in the 24th minute. It seemed they would coast to victory, but they weren't able to add a second goal, and Simi equalized in the 93rd minute. That was his 20th goal of the season, which is quite remarkable for someone playing for the last-placed team. With that draw, Cagliari achieved salvation, so this match suddenly became much easier for Milan, at least in theory. Milan dominated the play early on, but Alexis Salamakers was foiled by Alessio Cranio, and Davide Calabria watched his effort from distance sail over the bar. Cagliari seemed to grow in confidence from that point on, and they were actually the better side for the final 15 minutes of the half. The commentators suggested that perhaps they had hyped themselves up to play for a win, and that desire cannot simply be switched off. Cagliari had the best chance of the match about 10 minutes into the second half. Leonardo Pavoletti got a free header in front of the goal. He's normally lethal in the air, especially from that distance, but his header, though powerful, was straight at Gigio Donnarumma, and the keeper made the save. Diego Godin won up that chance with a header of his own about 10 minutes later. This time, Donnarumma needed every inch of his big frame to keep the ball out. Milan, on the other hand, looked really uninspired. Their body language suggested that they had already accepted a poor result. 
They didn't show any urgency until the final quarter of the match, maybe even a bit later than that. Unfortunately, the shots that they did create kept on falling for Samu Castillejo, and his finishing was dreadful. This one finished in a nil-nil draw, which you have to say was a fair result. You could even say that Caliody deserved a better result for how they played, especially when you take into account that they apparently had a few celebratory beers before the match. Finally, Roma beat Lazio 2-0 in the Derby della Capitale. Very quickly, Roma fully deserved this win. They were clearly the better side on the night. Lazio were very disappointing considering they were still competing for a place in the Champions League. I mentioned that Milan looked uninspired. Lazio didn't look much better. Champions League aside, we know how much this derby means to both of these clubs, but Lazio just looked tired. I thought Roma's goalkeeper Daniel Fusato had an excellent match, so he may have been a revelation for Roma. Eden Dzeko played really well too. He's certainly a player who understands the importance of this match. We'll see if this was his last derby della capitale, though it seems like we say that every year. Finally, Pedro, a former Jose Mourinho player at Chelsea, put the game away with a gorgeous left-footed strike from distance into the bottom corner. So Lazio's chances of qualifying for the Champions League have come to an end. They will return to the Europa League next season. We are tied with Milan on 76 points, but they rank ahead of us with a better head-to-head record. Juve remain one point behind us on 75 points, so the final two Champions League positions will be decided on the final day of the season. Juve play Atalanta in the Coppa Italia final midweek before closing the season against Bologna. Milan play Atalanta in their final match. It will be interesting to see how Atalanta approaches that match. All Atalanta have left to play for is the Coppa Italia. Finally, we close the season against Hellas Verona. I won't go through all of the scenarios now. I'll cover that next episode when we preview the Hellas Verona match. That will do for part 2. In part 3, we'll review our Femenile match against Hellas Verona's women. In the final part, we'll review our latest Feminile match. Heading into this round, we were third from the bottom of the table on 12 points. That was three points clear of San Marino Academy, who were second from the bottom in that final relegation spot. With only two matches remaining, including this one, a win from this match would guarantee our survival. Hellas Verona were one position ahead of us in the table, but they had already achieved salvation. They were on 19 points, which was 7 points clear of us and 10 points clear of San Marino in the relegation zone. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Verona lined up in a 3-5-2 with Francesca Durante in goal. Caterina Ambrosi started in the center of the back three with Sara Mella to her left and Giorgia Motta to her right. Anna Jelencic played at left wing back and Michela Ledri started at the right wing back. Irene Santi started in the center of the midfield with Rossella Sardu to her left 
and Madison Solo to her right. Finally, Elena Nichele and Giorgia Marchiori started together up top. For Napoli, Alessandro Pistolesi went back to his more typical formation after resting some of his regular starters against Juventus. He lined up in the 4-3-3 with Sabrina Tasselli in goal. Alexandra Hune returned to the starting 11 to play alongside Gomi Arnadotir in the center of the back line. Martina Fuzzini started at left back and Elisabetta Oliviero returned to her usual position at right back. That meant Paola Di Marino was relegated back to the bench. Sara Houchet returned to the starting 11 to play in the center of the midfield with Eleonora Goldini to her left and Emma Eriko to her right. That pushed Lara Pedersen back to the bench. Jenny Hillman and Federica Caferata shifted forward from their wingback roles in the 3-5-2 to play on the wings in the 4-3-3, and Izotta Noki was back at the false nine with Evi Popadinova back on the bench. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's get to the match. It didn't take us long to get our first shot on target. Caferata won a free kick in the Verona half. Huchet put the ball into the area, but it was cleared out to Oliviero. She took an audacious strike from 30 yards out that didn't have much power, but it had plenty of spin, so much so that Durante was nearly fooled on the bounce, but she managed to knock the ball down in front of her before collecting it. Napoli had a glorious chance in the 15th minute. Fuzzini played a gorgeous ball from the left side of the midfield to Noki in the area. Noki timed her run perfectly to get behind the Verona back line. She didn't take the ball down particularly well on her chest and probably should have taken the shot with her left foot. Instead, she tried to spin and shoot with her right. That allowed Ambrosi to get into position to block the shot, which still required a good reaction save by Durante. About midway through the first half, Arnaudotir fell awkwardly and appeared to injure her right foot. She tried to walk it off, but she was clearly in a lot of pain. Unfortunately, she had to come out, which was a huge loss for us. Arnaudotir has been so reliable and consistent since she joined the club earlier this season. Her and Hyun have formed a really strong partnership at center back, so Di Marino had to come off the bench to fill the void. We came close again in the 39th minute after winning a free kick on the right side of the midfield. Huchet played a direct free kick that forced Durante to punch the ball out. If she didn't get to that ball then Goldoni was waiting to head it into the back of the goal. Things got a little testy after that. Hyun and Nikele got tangled up at the sidelines. It appeared that Nikele grabbed Hyun's hair and when Hyun got into her face, she shoved Hyun's face away. Somehow neither player was booked in the incident. Verona didn't get their first real chance until a few minutes before the half. Ledri played a dangerous cross into the area and Sardo beat Oliviero to the ball but her header just missed the target. That was the final chance for either side in the first half which ended nil-nil. We lost a bit of our momentum during the break. Verona were the better side for the opening 15 minutes of the second half. Pistolesi saw this and made a pretty bold triple substitution with about half an hour left to play. He replaced midfielder Goldoni with striker Popadinova and he replaced both of his wingers. Hillman was subbed off for Pia Riesdijk, another striker, and Cafarata was replaced by defender Mariah Cameron. Pistolesi also switched to a 3-4-3 formation by having Oliviero push up into the midfield. I did not particularly like the Cafarata change. She's one of our more creative players and she has great technical abilities so it didn't make much sense to me that she was removed. Cafarata didn't look too happy coming off the pitch either. In the end though, I think Pistolesi got it right. The momentum swung back in our favor after the changes and like in the first half we began to push forward again. 
All game long we did well in the buildup, but once we got to the final third, it was like we hit a brick wall, and that was because Verona defended really well. They forced us out wide, and when we crossed the ball, they seemed to win every aerial battle. It appeared we were running out of time, and then, in the third minute of stoppage time, we got one of our best chances of the match. Oliviero played a deep in-swinging corner from the right side. Houche tried an acrobatic scissor kick, and though she didn't connect fully, she did put the shot on target. With a crowd in front of the goal, Durante saw the ball late, but she still managed to make an excellent save to protect her clean sheet. That was the final chance of the match, which finished nil-nil. Even though we tied, this felt like a loss, not because we necessarily dominated the match, but because we knew that a win here would have guaranteed our survival. The players knew this as well. Oliviero, Hyun, Huche, and Di Marino all stayed out on the pitch after the final whistle. They were visibly upset. Even Pistolesi stayed out there for a while. To make matters worse, even though Verona had achieved salvation with four rounds left to play, they decided to celebrate that after this match with custom t-shirts. They were singing a song together, which was apparently something they did all season long in the locker rooms, and that's what was written on the shirts, which was fine. They should celebrate. They earned it. It just sucked that our players had to sit out there and watch while we missed our opportunity to stay up. Meanwhile, San Marino played against last place Bari. If San Marino did not win, then our draw to Verona would have still guaranteed our survival. That was an emotional match. San Marino started the match really strong. It seemed Bari could not get the ball out of their own half for the first quarter of the match. Then Bari settled down and the game evened out a little bit, which gave me a little bit of hope. Then just before the end of the first half, San Marino scored from a corner kick. So at that point, we had not achieved salvation yet. Batty responded really well after the break and equalized only 6 minutes into the half. That gave me hope again, not just because the score was level, but because Batty were looking a lot more confident after the goal. But about 10 minutes later, San Marino went back ahead again, again from a corner kick. And from that point forward, Batty never really looked like much of a threat. In fact, had it not been for Batty keeper Rebecca Di Fronzi, this match easily could have ended 3 or 4 to 1 for San Marino. So San Marino are now only one point behind us in the table, which means the second relegation spot will go down to the final day of the season. Both teams play at lunchtime on Saturday, which is 6.30 in the morning Eastern time. Both teams have tough matchups. We play against 4th place Roma and San Marino play against 5th place Fiorentina. Both of those teams are difficult opponents. Neither of them have anything left to play for, but as we just saw, that doesn't mean these will be easy matches. I think we're especially in tough given that our match is a derby, but we do have the advantage. The draw against Verona wasn't a great result, but it's also not a terrible result either. We already knew that any Napoli win or any Verona loss would mean we're safe. But because of that point, a draw for San Marino would not be enough either. Even if we lost, a San Marino draw would put us level on points, but we own the tiebreaker. So the only scenarios where San Marino surpasses us in the table is if we lose and they win or draw. Hopefully we just get the win and then the rest doesn't matter. So that will do for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and leave us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod. I'll be back later in the week to preview our big match against Hellas Verona, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre!
Ay seren ailemele sayet de tu sayado Ma si fuie e lasă sta, e lunte coria prieso, nu te sluie, tu la guarda, Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.